Father, we come before you this morning giving you thanks for this reminder of the love that you have for us as expressed through Christ on the cross. Father, we know something about love. We know something about the way it makes us feel and the things that it makes us do, but our understanding of love doesn't compare with the love that you've shown to us. Your love is incomprehensible. It is indefinable, indescribable. It is beyond anything that we can think. And yet we know that it's real and that it's true. Your word says it is, and the life change within us as a result of our faith and the finished work of Christ has demonstrated that it's real. I pray, Father, that our love for you wouldn't be reduced to just what we enjoy and what we hold dear, but it affects what we do. The lives that we live, the service that we give to you, the sacrifice that we make for your kingdom's work, that the world around us would see something uniquely different about us because of this love that we know and this love that we proclaim and sing about. And Father, as we have focused on the cross and on your love, I pray that you would now draw our heart's attention to the truth of your word, that it would accomplish what you've intended in every heart and every life, apart from anything that I might say, but what your word says through the work of your Holy Spirit, who seeks to conform us into your image, who seeks us to lead us into obedience, who seeks to empower us to be faithful, who seeks to encourage us to stay the course, who encourages us to repent and confess, the one who reminds us of the love that we know. Father, would you help us to set aside every distraction and every concern and every worry, every difficulty and hardship and focus on you and you alone. And Father, we pray that as we give to you our attention, that you be pleased with our heart and with our heart's response to our time of being in your presence today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be seated. Open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and also Romans chapter 12 as we will finish up our discussion on the gifts that are recorded for us in God's Word. Now, we've been talking about the gift of salvation and the joy of salvation. We've talked through the 12th chapter of Romans about what should take place in us and through us as a result of this salvation that we know. And as you follow along in Romans chapter 12, I won't read these first six verses, but I will reference them in my outline. And as a way of reminder for those who have short-term memories, right? We all do. And for those who weren't here last week, who didn't get the first part of this message, I'll go and do a little bit of overview on what we've looked at. So there is, first of all, motivated service that is to come from our lives as we give consideration to the mercy of God that we know. Some know great mercy from God, some know less mercy from God, but all of us know something about God's mercy. And what we know and what we experience should motivate us to serve Him. It motivates us to a dedicated service. We are to present ourselves to Him. Here am I, not like Jonah who runs away, And not like others who say, I will, but only under these conditions. But we are to say, here am I. We are to present ourselves to him as a sacrifice in a way that is pleasing to him, not to ourselves, not to someone in the church, not to a family member. 
But we give ourselves to him a dedicated service in a way that is pleasing to him as we continually reflect back on the mercy of God that we know. This leads us to a transformed service as we resist being conformed to the world and make no mistake about it, the world is conforming us into its image. And unless we consciously resist that, we will be conformed to ways that we may not recognize until we are then transformed, and that transformation comes as we choose to give our lives to the Word of God. God's Word is active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is powerful. It speaks of God's eternal revelation about Himself, of His plans, and of His purposes, and of His desires for His children. And as we allow the truth of His Word resonate in our minds and in our hearts in such a way that we are willing to do it, we will be transformed by that power that exists within the truth of God's Word. This kind of transformation will prove to us that God's will is what is good, that God's will is what is perfect, and it is God's will that is ultimately pleasing to me. Now that is absolutely contradictory to our human nature that says, you got one life to live, you got to grab all you can while you can, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. But the child of God says, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to serve you, to love you and live for you, as I continually reflect upon the mercy of God that I know. Well, there is a very hindered service in our willingness to do all that God has called us to do. We're challenged in this passage of Scripture to think correctly about ourselves. We are to have sound judgment or sober judgment about ourselves. We are not too good to serve God in what might seem on the outside to be a very menial way, something beneath us or demeaning to us. We're not to be boastful in our service to God. We're not to boast about how God has gifted us or God has chosen to use us. But we are to serve the Lord humbly, gratefully, and thankfully that we have something that we can give back to Him as we reflect on the mercy of God. That should be what motivates us to break free from the hindrance of service that is going to exist in us naturally to live a supernatural lifestyle, one that says, here am I, I will serve you whatever the cost. We're to be reminded in this passage of a unified service that we are members of one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? Yet within this one body, there is an incredible amount of diversity. We're not all alike. We don't think alike. We don't have the same preferences. We don't have the same hobbies. We don't have the same ideals. We don't aspire to the same things. We haven't come from the same places and experienced the same kind of family background, had the same kind of education, had the same kind of money in our lives. All of us are very different, yet God uniquely weaves us into a beautiful tapestry that reflects the oneness that is to exist within the body of Christ. There is to be an interdependence upon one another within the body. The word would say it like this. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we rejoice with him. When one hurts, we hurt with him. When one member of the body isn't doing what it's supposed to do, the rest of the members of the body are going to suffer from it in some way. We may not see it. We may not be aware of it. But make no mistake about it. 
It is the truth. So as we think about this unified service where we are one body with very diverse backgrounds and makeup, that we are to be interdependent upon one another, or to ask ourselves this question, what can I do for the body that I belong to, not what can the body that I belong to do for me? In the modern church movement, there is this thing called consumerism, where people will visit churches and they'll pick the best music ministry, the best children's program, the best best preaching, the best missions, the best location, the best something, because that's going to benefit my life. Very, very few say, how can I benefit the body that I belong to? So this idea of giving ourselves sacrificially to the Lord in a way that's pleasing to Him in light of the mercies of God totally upends how the average person looks for a church. This leads to number six, a gifted service. Our giftedness, listen, is the divine enablement from the Spirit to be useful in the service to the Lord. It is a divine enablement. You can be the smartest guy that God made out of gifted you to teach. You might have a big heart that God hasn't given you the gift of leadership. It isn't about our natural abilities. It isn't about the way God has uniquely woven us together. Our service to Him is defined by the way God in His infinite wisdom and grace and sovereignty has chosen to gift us. We have no vote. We have no say. We are simply to say, I am thankful that you have given me some way to serve you. This giftedness is different from our natural skills, our natural talents, our natural abilities. It is a spiritual gift from Him to be used for Him. Now we'll talk just a little bit more about that at the very end of the message. But our gifts are not the same. They are given to us by His grace. And there is an expectation that we will use them. Now, we look specifically at the gifts, and this is part two of where we were last week. As we reflect on the mercies of God, as we've heard this idea of giving to Him a sacrificial service that is pleasing to Him, and it is to benefit the members of the body, what are we to do in service to God? What are we to do to and for the body of Christ? Well, Scripture will tell us in what is two primary passages, and we're going to look at the focal parts of these passages. The first one, Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8, and then 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, and then later on we'll reference Ephesians, where we talk about the gift of evangelism. So Romans 12, 6 through 8 says this, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, over in Romans chapter 12, we read from 4 through 10. I want to pick up some of the same things that the book of Romans says, but for context of what it says here in 1 Corinthians about gifts. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good for the body of Christ. Here's where it talks about the gifts. 
Verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the the interpretations of tongues. Now, within these two passages of Scripture, you'll find almost all of the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the Bible. Now, spiritual gifts are different from spiritual discipline. This is why prayer isn't mentioned as a spiritual gift. It's why memorization isn't a spiritual gift. It's why Bible reading isn't a spiritual gift. Those are spiritual disciplines, and they are very different. But as we look at these spiritual gifts in these two passages, and then the one in Ephesians, we look at very quickly the, the, the three types. The first types is... I uh, didn't get in there. I'm sorry. Um, uh, the first the scope of the gifts, the first one, letter A, is permanent. This is in your outline. It's not on the screen. So the permanent gifts are gifts that will always be present in the life of the church. From the beginning to the end, these permanent gifts will be present. We'll talk about those in a second. Letter B, the temporary gifts. The purpose of temporary sign gifts was to authenticate the apostolic message as the Word of God until the time when the Scriptures with his written word, were completed and then would become self-authenticating. Now, the gifts that are generally considered to be temporary in the life of the church are miracles, healing, languages or tongues, and the interpretation of languages or the interpretation of tongues. And we talked about that a great deal last week. Not going to revisit it in any depth this week. But these temporary gifts do not mean that God does not and cannot perform miracles. It does not mean that God cannot or does not continue to heal people. And it does not mean that God will not or cannot continue to give some the gift of language. These temporary gifts were given as a primary purpose to authenticate the words that were spoken by the men enabled by God to speak. So the second thing that we saw in this are the purposes of these gifts. Number two, the purposes, letter A, is to edify the church. These are where the um, permanent gifts generally fall into line, and these continually will edify the church throughout the church age, and these gifts are to be ministered by his people at all times, in the life of the church. So the second purpose is to confirm the word of God, just like the temporary gifts we talked about. These were limited in time to authenticate the message and the messenger as those who were speaking for the Lord. Now you got to know that when the apostles came onto the scene and began to, began to radically teach things about God, most especially to Jews, they wanted to see some proof that what they were saying was actually true, just as they had Jesus had to do in his ministry. They always were looking for a sign. Show us a sign. By what authority do you say these things? And Jesus would show the signs. So it is believed by most that these gifts were limited to the apostolic age and therefore ceased after the apostolic age when the revelation of God's word was completed and there was no longer any time to authenticate God's word, or God's messengers. Now we move on as a review from last week. We saw the types of gifts. The first one were verbal. Number one is prophecy, the gift of preaching or proclaiming the word of God. Now some interpreters believe that the gift of prophecy was revelatory and was limited for the giving of God's word initially, which would apply to the apostles, just like the sign gift, some believe that these ceased. While it is certainly true that 
prophecy has a revelatory function, especially in the Old Testament times. In the New Testament, it was used of revelation that had already been given, and it was someone who was going to proclaim the word that already existed in Scripture. And so that's why the general definition is the preaching or the proclaiming of the word of God. Secondly, there was the gift of teaching, which refers to not only the act of teaching, but the content of what is taught. And so the gift of teaching is a special ability to interpret and present God's truth in an understandable way. Number three is exhortation. It has the literal meaning of calling someone to one side for the purpose of advising or pleading or encouraging or comforting them as they went through a difficult time, or as they needed a friend, a shoulder to lean on. But sometimes that gift would be used to admonish the church to obedience because there was a leaving of the truth of God's word in practice. Number four, the gift of wisdom. The word of wisdom is a broad term. Remember that word there is logos, which means this is a speaking gift, not something that someone owns intellectually, but it is more than that. It refers to the applying of truth that has been discovered to one's life in a practical way to make a difference in someone's life. So when we talk about wisdom, it's not just what you know, but it's applying what you know to how you live your life. That's a general way of talking about wisdom. Number five is knowledge. The word of knowledge is also a broad term and basically refers to perceiving and understanding the truths of God's word. Now, we can all do that in some capacity, but those that have been given the gift of knowledge have a greater capacity to remember and to learn and to then repeat God's word to other people. These are the individuals who would write commentaries. They are authors. They are people that can recall passages of Scripture that relate to a certain theme or topic or idea. But it is the idea of grasping the meaning of God's revelation, which is a mystery to the natural mind. Now, the last one of these verbal gifts is the gift of evangelism. We find this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the same purpose as explained in Romans and Corinthians for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So the work of the evangelist is to preach and explain the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to those that have not yet believed. Now, some of these gifts we may not possess, but we still may use them in a limited capacity. For example, you may not have the gift of evangelism, but you still have the capacity to share your faith with other individuals. You may not stand up in a pulpit and preach or proclaim God's word publicly to a group of people. That doesn't mean you can't be a facilitator or a small group leader in some kind of a Bible study. Because you can't say, I possess that gift, doesn't mean you have an exemption from utilizing that gift in some form or fashion. Now, how you do that is obviously going to be defined by the particular gift and the application of which, by which you're trying to use that gift. Now, we get into the nonverbal gifts now, and this is all the new information that we've not yet looked at. So when we look at the nonverbal gifts, we're obviously talking about those that don't involve preaching, prophecy, wisdom, exhortation, etc. So the first one that we see here is the gift of service. This is in Romans 12, verse 7, if service, then in his serving. Now, if you were to look back over in 1 Corinthians 12 and go down to verse 28, 
you would see the word helps. The word service and helps mean the same thing. Service is a general term for ministry. Service translates the word diakona, from which we get the word deacon or deaconess, which is primarily those who serve. Now, the very first deacons that were called are listed in Acts chapter three, verses three. Excuse me, Acts chapter six, verses three and four. The first deacons in the early church were men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who were placed in charge providing food for the widows in order to free up the apostles to devote themselves to the word of God. So even in our service to the body, there is this expectation of good reputation, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Not just somebody who's willing to do whatever he asks me to do, although that is a component to do it, but the first deacons who potentially had a different role than what we might see today in the first church, were, were expected to have a much, a very significant spiritual capacity to them. So service is a simple, straightforward gift that is broad in its application. The gift applies beyond the office of deacon or deaconess. And so a very practical definition for service is every sort of practical help that Christians can give to one another. You know, when we see something like that, we should be thankful that we don't have to have a verbal gift in order to minister to the body of Christ. You may look at yourself and say, I don't know what I can do, but I know that there's a widow in my church who can't mow her grass, but I can, and I'll go do that. Or they might need something done in their home. Or they might need someone to take care of the kids for a doctor. There may be something that can be done that is practical that doesn't require some specialized training that we can do to help one another in the name of Christ. In my experience in the church, as I've done spiritual gifts and done these inventories with many, many, many different people, service ranks as one of the most prolific spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. Most people will test high in the gift of service, and there's no coincidence to that. Why? Because there is a very broad range of needs within the life of the church that someone with the gift of service can accommodate that a speaking gift could never take care of. I can't go talk your lawn into quit growing. I can't make it do that. It would be wonderful if I could. I'd be out in my yard a lot. I get tired of doing that. But there's practical ways that we can help one another, don't require any specialized training, and make no mistake about it, it is a tremendous blessing to those who are on the receiving end of that. Number two in the nonverbal gifts is the gift of giving. I really learned something here. We find this in, in Romans 8b, he who gives with liberality. Now, I would bet that most of us have thought or heard or understood that the gift of giving was about how much money you had in the bank and how much you were willing to give to the ministries of the kingdom of God. Isn't that what we typically have heard or believe? That's not really what it means, though. So the usual Greek word for giving is the word didomai, but the word here in Romans is intensified with the phrase meta, or the preface preface of meta, which means which is metadidomai, which carries the additional meaning of sharing and imparting that which is one's own. The one who exercises this gift gives sacrificially of himself. Now, as an example, when asked by the multitudes, John the Baptist, in the early days of his ministry, what should they do to bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance? 
John replied like this in Luke chapter 3, verse 11. He answered them and said, The man who has two tunics is to share a meadow didami, or meadow didai, with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. See, it's not just about money. It can be about material possessions. It can be about what we have physically, but it isn't limited even to that. In the opening letter, in the, excuse me, opening verses of Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 1.11, Paul says, For I long to see you so that I may impart metadidoi, some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Now, was Paul a wealthy man? Paul was a self-sustaining tent maker who had given himself to the ministry that God had called him to. And that giving of his life would be exemplified with this metadidomai, or metadidomai, where he gave of that which was his own. Paul's spiritual, excuse me, Paul's gift in this application is his teaching, his edification, his encouragement, his discipling, his leading, which had nothing to do with anything that he himself possessed physically. Paul wanted to go to the church in Rome so that he could give something to them beyond physical need. So to give is to give sacrificially, and to those with the gift of giving, they do so with liberality. That word liberality has the root meaning of singleness, and it came to mean single-mindedness, open-heartedness, and then it meant generosity. So the one who has the gift of giving gives of all that they own, physically and spiritually, generously to those who are in need. So the idea is, giving with liberality, is sincere, heartfelt giving that is untainted by affection or ulterior motive. I give, not so I can pat myself on the back. I give not so others can see it and say, ooh, he's a spiritual man. I don't even give for the need itself. I give in view of the mercies of God because I am committed to the edification of the church. That is the motivation that we are to give of ourselves to the body, to his kingdom's work. Now, I've been in ministry a number of years, and I can tell you that there are far more people than I can name or remember who were offended that they didn't get a phone call thanking them, they didn't get a card in the mail thanking them, they didn't get uh, a boy from the pulpit and thanking That doesn't mean that we don't thank those who serve. I've tried very hard in my ministry to thank those on the spot when they serve. But when we get our feathers ruffled because we didn't get the attaboy that we want, it probably means that we don't really possess the gift of giving. doesn't mean that we shouldn't give. doesn't mean that we can't give. But when we give, we are to give in view of God's mercy, not in the hope, not in the need that someone is going to recognize that and it's going to benefit us in some way. So the Christian who gives with liberality gives of himself Not for himself. He does not give for thanks or for recognition, but for the sake of the one who receives his help and for the glory of the Lord. That's why we are to give. I have been blessed in my life to have been the recipient of those who have given with liberality to me and to the ministries that I've been a part of. And I'll tell you what, when the church doesn't experience 
the blessing of those who have that gift, it makes a huge difference. Just like it does when those who won't serve, just like it does when those who won't teach, just like it does when those who won't serve the Lord in view of his mercies. Now, the third nonverbal gift that we look at here is a gift of leadership. This is in verse 8 of Romans 12, and it says, He who leads with diligence. Now, in the New Testament, that word leads never is used of government leaders or of the secular world as a whole. For example, in 1 Timothy, it is used in headship of the family, and it's used as headship within the church. So that word leadership there is used very differently within the church and the family than it would outside of the church and the family. The most basic meaning of leading is standing before others. It is someone who stands before others. I think about this in the Old Testament days. I think about the ministry of Moses. And Moses constantly stood before the people to talk to them, to instruct them, to encourage them, to motivate and to plead with them. And so that's the idea of standing before others. Now, if your thumb is still in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look down in that same verse 28, and Paul refers to the gift of leadership with a different word, and that is the word administrations. Now, when we hear the word administration, what comes to our mind? Administrative skills, right? Filing and bookkeeping and organization and planning and having everything in a place, and it's just... It's just compulsively planned out, right? You've seen a desk like that? Mine's not, that. Mine's not like that. But administrations doesn't mean organizational skill. It's the same word, excuse me, the same meaning expressed in a different way. The word administrations in, 12, in 1 Corinthians 12.28 means to pilot the ship. How many captains are there on a ship? Well, there's one. There's no, there's no distinction, or excuse me, there's no disagreement or misunderstanding about who is the captain of a ship. Now, within the church, we believe in a plurality of leadership. It's not the one-man show. I'm the pastor, but I'm not the only leader. I'm not the king. It's not my way or the highway. But a plurality of leadership that is not limited to elders and deacons and deaconesses, but some within that group must possess it, but that gift of leadership must exist within any ministry function of the church, or it will be like a ship without a pilot. Or it will be a ministry where there is no one standing in front of the people. And what would we say about something like that? Well, it'd be pretty dysfunctional, wouldn't it? I think we see this most clearly in the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's one of the few books where Paul doesn't mention any functioning leadership individuals in that church. There's no Timothy, there's no Epaphras, there's no anybody that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians. And as you read through that book and you understand the serious moral and spiritual problems that church faced, it's most likely that there was a lack of spiritual leadership in there which would explain its spiritual condition. So within the life of the body, when there is no leadership function in place, we will revisit the days of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, you know one of the things about being a leader, I had a friend back in Ohio. <laughs> he said, my, my goal for you is to be the chief 
javelin catcher. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you're in a position of leadership, everybody's got a javelin, and when they don't like the leadership or the direction or the message, they're going to throw that javelin. Now, each of you possess a javelin. And I would, I would guarantee that at some point in your church experience, there was something you didn't like, you disagreed with, and your natural instinct was attack the leader. Isn't that exactly what took place in the, in the nation of Israel? They constantly attacked the leadership because they thought they knew best. Well, I can tell you it's very, very difficult to submit to leadership, especially when you don't understand or you disagree. And that's why effective leadership must be done with diligence and earnestness and with zeal. And it isn't a consideration of popular vote or the majority. I've been in ministry team settings before where there's been discussion about a new initiative or a change of something, and invariably one person would say, well, what is so-and-so going to think about that? Is that the primary consideration of a leader? It doesn't mean that a leader leads without consideration of those he's leading, but it means we're not to be constrained by those who may not understand, those who need time to figure out what's being discussed. And so oftentimes the leadership function will be sabotaged, sabotaged by this commitment to public opinion or the majority because they don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. So whether it's possessed by church officers or members with who oversee direct things like Sunday school or a youth group or the nursery or the building program, the visitation minister, whatever it might be, somebody has to have the gift of leadership to stand before others and say, here's what we're doing, and here's the way we're going to do it, and this is why we're doing it that way. Somebody has to have that function. Now, the fourth gift that is nonverbal that we look at is the gift of mercy. In Romans 12, verse 8, latter part of that, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, mercy is, the, is another one of the gifts that tests very, very high within the body, Service and mercy, and I don't think there's a coincidence for that. Showing mercy carries the joint idea of actively demonstrating sympathy for someone else and having the necessary resources to successfully comfort and strengthen that person. So the gift of Christian who shows mercy is divinely endowed with special sensitivity to the suffering and the sorrow of other people with the ability to notice misery and distress that might go unnoticed by others and then have a desire and a means to help alleviate the difficulty that someone is going through. So a very simple definition. The gift involves more than sympathy. It is feeling put into action. Someone with the gift of mercy might come to a leader in the church and say, you know, Miss Mary, she's got a problem. You know, somebody needs to do something about Mary's problem. I think we ought to do, I think we ought to go, maybe we can put together. That's a person that has the gift of mercy. The leader might say, who's Mary? I have no idea who Mary is. But this is the individual. They have a feeling that gets put into action. Now, sometimes the gift of mercy is nothing more than physical presence to say, I'm here for you, I'm praying for you, I'll give you my shoulder to cry on. Sometimes the gift of mercy needs something put with it. 
You know, it's one thing to say, hey, there's a young family that doesn't have any food in their pantry. Boy, that's a terrible thing, isn't it? It's another thing to say, let's go get them some food. It's putting those feelings into action. And so the Christian with this gift finds ways to express these feelings and these concerns in a practical way of help. And he does that to meet the need of the individual body within the believer. So the believer shows mercy, may, ha- may exercise his gift in hospital visitation, jail ministry, service to the homeless, the poor, the handicapped, the nursing home, whatever it might be. I am here, I know you have a need, and I'm going to do anything I can to meet that need. This enablement is not to be ministered grudgingly or merely out of a sense of duty, but with cheerfulness. Now, if you don't have the gift of service and you don't have the gift of mercy, you can't say, Man, am I glad of that. That's going to require too much of me. We need to learn how we can serve. We need to learn how we can be more merciful as we have been recipients of the greatest gift of mercy, and that is our salvation. Now we finish up here. Back to 1 Corinthians. Number five here is the gift of faith. In verse 9, God has given to another faith by the same Spirit. So the gift of faith is this sovereign Spirit-given faith that is different from saving faith or the daily faith that we would live our lives by. The category of giftedness is different because it involves an intensive ability to trust God in difficult and demanding ways. The ability, excuse me, the intensive ability to trust God in difficult and demanding ways. Have you ever been in a group setting and you're talking about this initiative, you're talking about this dream or this idea, and somebody says, boy, we could never do that. How would we ever accomplish that? We've never done it like that before. Well, that individual doesn't have the gift of faith. The person who who has the gift of faith, who can intensely trust God, regardless of the circumstances, more times than not, people will look at him and go, are you crazy? Miriam Ruger, the director of Chester County Women's Services, just told this story at the open house on Friday. Someone had called her and said, hey, I think we need a new building. We need to expand the ministry. And she said, no, I don't think so. We're doing all we can do. And guess what happened? The next day, this opportunity was plunked down in their lap. But somebody spoke out of this intense ability to trust God. And now we're going to get to see what will happen through the ministry that becomes the result of this gift of faith. So this gift of faith is primarily expressed towards God through prayer, appealing to and trusting God to do that which is beyond his normal provision. We see this in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. You see, what I believe every church ought to pray, every Christian ought to pray, is this. And you've heard me say this many, many times. God, I want you to do something in me and through me that can only be explained by you. We may not possess the gift of faith, but we can grow in our faith as we look back at the faithfulness of God, as we look at the way God has been faithful to His people throughout all of history, 
and ask ourselves a question. Can I believe that God in the same way? Well, absolutely we can. Is it uncomfortable? You better believe it. Will it challenge us? It will. So we have the gift of faith. Now the last nonverbal gift that we're going to look at is number six, the gift of discernment. We see this in 12, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 10. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits. It's an important gift for the protection of the church in that it has the ability, I'll just get the definition, it is the examination and judgment in order to determine what is genuine and what is false. So discernment has the ability to distinguish the difference between what is genuine and what is false. This might relate to individuals. It might relate to ministry plans and initiatives. It might relate to values and priorities that the church is being asked to adopt. But to those to whom God has given this gift of discernment, they have this unique ability to recognize unbiblical ideas and actions, and something happens within them, and they say, wait a minute, I'm not so sure about this. We, we need to stop, and we need to really check and see what God's Word says. We need to pray about this. We need to make sure, because I, I just don't have, a, I don't have a real settled feeling about this. Now, does it become the police of all things that are spoken within the church, or all ideas within the church? But we're talking about this unique ability to recognize the genuine from the false. Now, some ideas that are given as scriptural and that on the surface seem scriptural actually can be, can be very clever counterfeits that can deceive believers. Do you think that's happening in the modern church today? Do you think there's churches out there that are saying, you know what, we're not getting enough visitors I'm concerned about that. I think we ought to do this and do that. I think we ought to change this and add that. And maybe we'll get new visitors to come and maybe we can get them to stay. And so what has not been uncommon within the church of today is you don't have crosses in your building. You don't talk about the sacrificial death of Christ. You don't talk about the blood of Christ. You don't talk about the cross of Christ. You don't talk about sin. You don't talk about confession. You don't talk about repentance. What are you talking about? You talk about love. You talk about acceptance, you talk about tolerance, you talk about destiny, you talk about God meeting your every dream. Well, you know, there's billions of lost people that want to hear a message like that, but it's counterfeit. What we need to hear is a life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was initiated in eternity past and realized at the cross and will continue all through the church age until God pulls the plug and we stand before him and give an account. You see, those that have a spirit of distinguishing can say, well, you know, on the surface that sounds like a good idea, but what about the truth of the gospel? What about the integrity of God's word? What about a ministry that is designed for the church of God? Just because a building has 5,000 seats and is filled doesn't mean that it is genuine. Just because a church can only hold 120 and only has 75 in it doesn't mean that it's false. We need all of these gifts, the verbal and the nonverbal, to function in the church so that the body can be what God intends it to be. 
Now, as you have heard a review or an explanation of these gifts, some of these might be very, very obvious to you that, yeah, I'm pretty confident I possess that gift. Some might not be as obvious. They might be a little bit fuzzy to you. You need a little bit more information. So this is what I have put together. And if I got this from a book or pamphlet or somewhere, I don't remember that. So here's what it is. Spiritual gift plus an area of passion or a natural ability will equal a place of ministry. So your spiritual gift, whether it's a verbal or a nonverbal gift, when that is matched to an area of passion that you have, and I just have this burning desire to see this happen. I really have a burden for this group of people. I really have a desire to do this kind of thing. That passion or that natural ability that you have, when you pair those two things together, it will result in a place of ministry. Let's say, for example, that you have a real passion about kids. You like little critters. It's just more is merrier, never, ever enough. I love children. And I happen to be a school teacher, and I have some ability to teach, so maybe I can teach in Sunday school. That's probably not going to be an incongruous match. Perhaps you have the gift of service and you really can't speak publicly. You can't do the teaching that you've heard someone talk about. But buddy, you can ride a mower out there in the yard for hours on end and you just love every minute of it because you're making something better for the body. we got people like that here that do that. So when you discover what your spiritual gift is and you match that to an area of passion that you have about the life of the church or with the natural ability that you have, you will find a place of ministry. Now, there's a, there's a group called churchgrowth.org. It's in your insert. And I wouldn't agree with 100% of everything that they do in their descriptions of the spiritual gift, but I believe as a whole, it's the most responsible group that can help you discover your spiritual gift. You can take this assessment online. It's $5.00. And you're asked 120 questions. And as you go through those questions and answer them, honestly, not as you think you should be, not as you would like to be, but as you really are. And that's okay because your gift is a divine enablement, not a weakness or a strength in your life. But if you really want to discover, that's a great place to go. And then I have some information where I can expand upon what your giftedness is. Most people, everybody has one. Uh, Some people have two or three. And then at the rest of the group that's there, you'll be below average, and that's okay. It doesn't mean you're a weak Christian. It means what you're seeing is the difference between the way you've been gifted and the way you've not been gifted in your service to the body. If you really want to learn how you can serve the body more effectively than you currently are, that's a great place to go. Along the way, I'll be glad to help you in any way that I can. But all of this is about one thing. It's about one thing. It's about what do I do in view of the mercy of God that has changed my eternity? Do I just sit in a pew, sit in a seat, occupy a space, do a little here, do a little there? Or will I say, here am I, I'm willing to give myself to you sacrificially, because you're worthy of all that I have. You complete all that I ever hope to be. Therefore, I will do what you call me to do. Tell you something to be good to do in the next week. Go through and read Hebrews chapter 11 and read the Hall of Faith.
And then go back and look what those individuals did and pray. God, make me desirous of that same kind of faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this great privilege you've given to us. You've given us a gift to serve you, a gift to serve the body, to make it better. God, I thank you that our gifts are equal. They're not all the same, but they're equal in value. Some are more public than others, but all are necessary. So God, I pray that you would create within us as only you can through the work of your Spirit in the renewal of our mind and our transformation that we would be motivated to serve you, whatever that means, in a way that would be pleasing to you. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would comfort and encourage and convict and refresh us spiritually as we consider the days ahead. We give you thanks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.